This is uh, Jess um, doing a very special episode of Escape from Plan A. Um, I've got Teen with me um, and uh, Casey, really special guest. We've had her on before. I'm really happy that she took the time to come talk to us again today. Um, so, and the topic we're going to talk about is something we've been trying to put together for a really long time. Um, and sadly, it's been an evergreen issue for a very, very long time uh, for us, which is, you know, the topic of uh, um, anti-Asian violence that's been that's been happening across the country. Um, just trying to get a sense of what it is, what it isn't, perhaps, um, and what the what the prevailing mood is in uh, higher office in what to what to do about it. So, um, Casey, could you could you please um, say a few words to introduce yourself to our audience? Of course. Um, so, thank you first, Jess and Teen, for having me. It's it's really nice to be back. And even though we haven't chatted for a while, I still listen to Plan A <laughs> on my oh. drive. So, I, I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, but also, okay. So, um, my name's Casey, and I'm based in San Francisco. Um, I am currently an assistant district attorney in San Francisco, and I wear two hats. So I'm a, an assistant district attorney there, and I'm also the chief of victim services. Um, and I, I do a lot of hands-on work and work directly with a lot of the victims who come into our system. But um, I'm also here in my personal capacity, too. And, and this is a, an issue that's near and dear to me. And um, I want to say the last times that I've been here, it, it was they were primarily to talk about these issues too, and that's um, crimes mm-hmm. against Asian American victims. And that was maybe back in 2018. Um, but, you know, this is an issue, just racism in general and, um, you know, Asian Americans being victimized. That's something that's that's um, an issue that, that I've always cared about for as long as I can remember. And, and starting with, um, I don't know if your listeners are old enough to remember, but starting with like yellowworld.org, um, that was one of the first organizations that I was a part of back in the early, early 2000s, um, working on the on like Asian American um, issues and developing kind of a collective consciousness. I remember that. Um, that was a, that was, that's a blast from the past, truly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You must have been really young back then. <laughs> I was. I think. I, yeah. I think I was in. A, I think I was in high school when I first mm-hmm. uh, heard about it. Um, but it was a. It, I mean, it was. A, it was just mind blowing. I mean, the internet itself is just mind blowing. Um, right when it when we f- it first happened, nobody really knew how to how to use it. And then to see it like to see like a real world issue being articulated on this uh, like fantasy platform, um, it was ahead of its time, honestly. Um, it felt like it. And, you know, it was because we weren't getting the attention that we needed on in mainstream media. So and at the time, we learned that 70 percent of the users um, on the on the net were Asian. So it's changed mm-hmm. a lot since then. But it was really kind of the perfect platform at the time. Yeah. 
uh, perfect time and place when it was still kind of an un undiscovered terrain and you could kind of mm -hmm. you kind of stake a place for it and make a name for yourself um and try to draw in an audience that you normally you wouldn't you'd be shut out of if you tried to go through more mainstream um channels for sure um yeah so um okay so so i mo i don't think we need to spend a lot of time uh teeing up the topic for our listeners here um but uh i mean so to so the last two years especially since um since covid in 2020 early 2020 um i feel like a nat like national consciousness of attacks against asian people have been on the rise um it, so uh, but you're talking but you're right the last time you last time you were on and, and your work for many years has been around um around violence against uh against asian people so this clearly has been a problem um stemming back years and decades um so from the perspective of someone who has been on the front lines of this for a very long time um what is the what is the biggest change i guess between like say pre-covid to post-covid um, well, I think the biggest change is one that there's definitely more media attention on it. Um, so this is attention that we've never gotten before. It, it used to be, you know, 10 years and even as, as recent as maybe five years or so when um, these incidents happened. And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about because we, you guys would have a podcast episode on it and people would be tweeting about it, but we were very much like our, like an echo chamber. Um, and, and it's been that way up until maybe 2020. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, now finally there's this national recognition and it's, um, it's, it's not just like within Asian American or API circles. It's, it's actually in like on primetime news when, when stuff like this happens. So, I think it's very new to a lot of people who haven't been a part of our circles or who aren't Asian American. Um, so that's one thing is that it's finally caught the, the attention that it deserves because some of these, um, you know, it, it goes without saying some of these incidents are very, very brutal and, um, and, and unnecessary. Right. Um, and the, the second thing is though that there's also a rise in hate incidents and that's maybe something that we I would say we haven't necessarily seen in the past like um and I, I do think mean, a lot like of that hate that like uh, like um hate meaning like a racist uh, like a I'm sorry a legal correct. definition of a, of a of a hate incident yeah you know I actually don't know what the legal definition of a hate incident is I know like what a a legal definition of a hate crime is like a, mm -hmm. you know, some it's an actual crime. But then, um, in addition to the crime, it it was motivated by race, gender, or you know, some other factor. Um, mm -hmm. That's that's listed in the statute. So, like some other protected class. Um, so that's kind of you know that's what a hate crime is. But then there are ha hate incidents too, like you know, hateful exchanges um, mm -hmm. that might happen that don't rise to the level of a, cr a crime. And I think we've seen a, a lot more of that starting in the beginning of COVID, of the pandemic. Um, I've experienced For it, sure. my partner has. Yeah, and I, I think, um, you know, that is something new. And, and we started logging that. And I, I think that that is something that's directly tied to 
the pandemic and it's it's different from what we saw before um you know i we settled i think we all felt like this you know undercurrent of like race we've always felt it that's how we came into these spaces right mm-hmm. um of racism like we called it microaggressions or casual racism i felt like every day i was you know i was feeling it i'm sure a lot of your listeners you guys were feeling it too on, on yeah. the day to day yeah but it's um, one of those frustrating things where it's kind of just ambient so it's hard mm-hmm. to put your finger on it or call it what it is because it's it's like grabbing air um you know you're surrounded by it but you can't really point to it exactly so for um, sure yeah there were, i mean there were things that some people actually said and this is during my, like my Twitter days. I don't know if I actually left Twitter back in like 2019, I want to say. And then Congratulations. I <laughs> and left again. Um, yeah. um, but, you know, there were some things that younger people said that made like concepts they coined, like stuff that has been bothered, had been bothering me for years, like, like white freeze. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that yeah. makes yeah, the second they said it, I was like, okay, that makes sense. And I know exactly what that means. Wait, white freeze? What does that mean? That's you know, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, this is, do you remember journey, the journey from to the West, um, the young yeah. women there? Yeah, so mm-hmm. um, it was a concept that they, they came up with. And just being in a work setting, um, and it's not necessarily that anyone is being like outwardly rude to you. Um, but you feel like this, you don't, you know, the, your superior may be white and your coworker um, may be too, and they go to lunch or they have their own chats that aren't necessarily work-related um, and you're not included. Um, mm-hmm. You're not exactly sure why, um, but I, yeah, I feel like that does like, happen. Like a group, like a group and they're laughing and having a good time. And then you walk, you walk in and then just it literally freezes. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. I see. Got it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So there was that, but that wasn't the same as the, that's not the same type of hate incidents that we have now. Like the actual confrontations, the, the use of slurs um, on kind of a, you know, hearing it on a regular basis now is not something that we saw as much before. Yeah. The stats are real. I mean, the stats are from what I've seen, Things like 330% increase in, I don't know if it's hate crimes or hate incidents or whatever, but whatever baseline they were measuring it with before, it's up like big time now. And yeah. uh, that's true in New York uh, as well. I don't know if it's like New York and San Francisco seem to be where the worst of it is happening. Like it's pretty bad here in New York as well. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, like, you know, everything from getting spat on or even getting just sort of yelled at all the way up to someone following into you, your uh, apartment and murdering you. And I'm, you know, it's a thing where for some reason there was a real reluctance in New York um, for people, including um, I would say a lot of like Asian Americans, uh, prominent ones at that, who write about this in the media, et cetera, there was a real reluctance to uh, attribute it to race. It seemed like there needed to be a very high standard. And I felt at least part of that was this equivalence that people have drawn between a hate crime charge 
and the crime being racially motivated, which are different things, right? Like, from my understanding, I'm no expert at this, but, you know, like to support a hate crime charge, there needs to be specific evidence. Uh, whereas with, you know, and, and you can't use like pattern as an example, right? You can't be like, oh, there's a crime wave against Asians in New York. So therefore, this latest one is definitely racially motivated. You can't use that as evidence. But if the pattern is so clear, like there, you know, if Michelle Goh was the second Asian woman to get pushed onto the tracks at on that platform in the in, you know, within the, the past, say, two months, which I think is which is correct. The last there was another shoving incident where another Asian woman was pushed onto the track on the Uptown R train platform, I think, two months prior to her death. Although I couldn't submit that. Right. The, the DA can't submit that as evidence. I think for regular people and especially for Asians, it seems kind of kind of counterproductive for us to be just openly skeptical that this is happening when the pattern is so clear. Does that make sense? I mean, it does. That- yeah. And I think that you touched on so many things. So that's, there's actually a lot to unpack here now. Um, but yeah, so, so first I, th- I think you're right that for hate crimes, um, it's exactly that, though, what you said. It's a crime that is motive that where the motivating factor is, um, you know, choosing the victim because of their protected class. So race, gender, sexual orientation, um, religion and so on. Um, and then, you know, the the standard for a criminal case across the board is beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's the highest standard that we have uh, in our nation. Right. So there's that. Um but then there, there's this other question of like, yes, but, um, you know, maybe we can't prove it, it can't be charged as a hate crime if there isn't sufficient proof that it is. But we all know that this is kind of, um, you know, we, we feel like this is because of race, because we see this happening over and over and over again. So I think I think there's maybe a, a couple of things. Um, one is that I think the the conflation of hate incidents and these um, street crimes, like these crimes against Asian American victims, um, that that is kind of what is creating this confusion. It's because it, it's a conflation of issues. One is hate incidents, and one is crimes, sometimes very very brutal crimes against Asian Americans. Um, and it's being conflated and it, it makes a difference because, you know, different issues cause call for different responses. Um, so that's one thing I think it's important to separate the two. Um, and then, yeah. mm-hmm, uh, and then looking just at hate crimes, kind of like what you talked about, like the, the very brutal crimes, um, against Asian American victims within those, you know, are there some that are hate crimes and um, are they being charged and are, and if they're not, like, should they be charged? Is that kind of also what you're asking? Yeah, I, I guess I've, I've found that the fact that, I mean, for me, it's like if someone is, you know, assaulted or, or in, in a very serious and violent way or God forbid murdered, those are very serious charges. And I don't know I guess I'm not familiar with um, the penalties here, but like I'm not sure that there's much of a community interest in the like delta between murder plus hate crime and just plain old murder. I don't know if that's like a a a real core um, 
interest for the community in terms of justice, right? Um, versus comp- way that, I mean, maybe there's some marginal benefit to having like um, a deterrence effect or, or, or just maybe like, you know, just the extra punishment of, of being, um, of having done something based off race. But way that small, that marginal difference that you get from the, the hate crime um, charge being tacked onto the underlying charge versus I think the result has been that law enforcement and the DA's office become arbiters of the general question, um, was this due to race? Because I think if the hate crime, I guess the way I think about it is this, if the hate crime charge is brought, it is a signal that race was a factor or the motivating factor. But if a hate crime charge is not brought, it does not mean that race was not, uh, it doesn't prove the negative. It doesn't mean that therefore race was not a factor is, 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 is how I think of it. Because like, take for example, mm -hmm. yeah, like take for example. That's absolutely true. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like let's, let's take for example, like, uh, the particular targeting of delivery boys, right. Delivery men. And, uh, their, their economic crimes of opportunity, their robberies, just so happens that, uh, well, it quote, just so happens that so many delivery men uh, are Chinese, Chinese immigrants. But I think over time, that'll definitely play into these crimes where there is a reputation that, oh, you know, Chinese delivery men are very easy to, to rob and, and you don't, you get away with it because there's not a lot of um, community pressure to, to, to prosecute these, these crimes. I isn't, I don't know, to me, I'm like, maybe you can't prove racial uh, motivation there, but it's pretty obvious to me that there is this thing going on, this meme going on, that mm-hmm. Chinese delivery men are easy targets, and there's a racial aspect to that, but not in a hate crime sense. So, I guess I have found the hate crime designation issue less than helpful in trying to understand what's going on. Yeah, yeah I've been I, having very uh, like personal res- reservations about uh, ha- uh, hate crime legislation or how it's used in public discourse, I should say. Um, it seems like a lot of the conversation around these crimes actually gets derailed over the issue of whether this crime that happened to an Asian person was a hate crime. So, you know... Um, uh, I don't know if that, uh, Casey, I don't know if that makes if that makes sense. But, you know, when I see, um, if you could explain in broad terms what the legal definition of a hate crime and how it's brought, the process by which a charge of, you know, hate crime would be brought, that would be great. But I'm talking about in public discourse, like when there is reporting on a crime uh, whose victim was Asian. Um, and, this, you know, the reporting might have a sentence like, uh, like race was not found to be a factor or hate, uh, hate crime charges were not brought against the perpetrator. And I think that is what sucks up the oxygen, a lot of the oxygen in the discourse over, over the nature of this crime and how to grapple with it at a community level. Uh, because the fact that race, uh, that a hate crime charge was not brought against the perpetrator is like an is is taken as like an indictment um, uh, of the race like systemic racism of the law enfor- of law enforcement or the criminal justice system. Um, when it seems uh, it seems, and that seems like a derailing of of a kind. It's basically overburdening criminal justice to be um, the arbitrate, the final arbitrator over like issues of like ambient racism broadly, 
when it seems like uh, it's really designed to prosecute like incidences of individual crime in this case. Um, also, the kind of like conflation in discourse that because the victim was um, Asian or you know a minority, that a crime against them must necessarily have been a hate crime uh, seemed uh, legally iffy. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, I actually appreciate this part of this a lot. This you guys bringing up this topic because it's not talked about enough. Um, but that's very true. And it, it's true in a lot of contexts. One that I can think of is like in the sexual assault context. Um, and, you know, oftentimes there, there may be no third party witness. And if the, for many reasons, if the victim doesn't go um, immediately to get a rape test kit or something like that, right, the, the evidence may be lost. And so those cases are sometimes hard to prove. And if they're not brought, like if charges are not brought, it doesn't mean the opposite is true, that that it never happened. It, you know, it did happen. There is a victim and that person is traumatized. And, um, you know, so, so, so kind of in that context, I think that's kind of an easy way to see it, that just because charges are not brought doesn't mean that um, the crime never happened or it's, it's not the crime that, um, it, you know, the, in the hate crime context that it wasn't a hate crime or something like that, or the person wasn't targeted. It's a, it's a question of whether or not there's sufficient proof to bring the charges and then sufficient proof to convict. And it's, it's pretty difficult because like I said, it's the highest um, standard in our nation, but you know, something I wanted to touch on too, is though I've had this conversation with um, one person who runs a patrol group, um, out here in San Francisco. And so, you know, in, in the Bay Area, and I think maybe in New York and other areas too, we've seen patrol groups pop, uh, pop up. Um, and they're now like patrolling Chinatown and other areas um, just to make sure that the elders are safe and so on. So one individual told me, um, you know, it does matter like that if a hate crime is is alleged and ultimately, um, you know, sustained because it, it matters to the community. So to some people it matters, but in terms of overall, like deterring these crimes and bringing down uh, like recidivism or, um, you know, I'm not, sh I'm not so sure it has that same effect because if, you know, a murder or even a, an attempted murder, which carries a life, you know, life terms um, is not enough for deterrence. Um, I'm not sure a three-year hate crime enhancement can, you know, would really change anything. Um, so, so there's that. Ridiculous. Sorry, it, it just seems ridiculous <laughs> that it would, you know, like right. just given the nature of like what each next crime looks like and how it under, you know, how it goes down, like, you know, um, some, 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 some random, uh, you know, Someone, someone getting punched in the head in the subway or something like that. Like, I, I don't think that person is thinking about the potential for hate crime, uh, <laughs> you know, like tack ons to whatever's coming, you know, like it just, there's no way I think that that's factoring into the, the, the mental state of people that are committing these crimes. I just don't believe it. Right. And then like another thing that Jess said, it derails the issue. And for us, the scary thing is when you're going into trial and we're talking to, to jurors, like lay people who typically don't practice law, 
um, and we're telling them to separate those issues. And for count one, murder, we're only looking at this. And then, but but also tacked on to count one is this enhancement where you have to consider this. We're 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 running the risk of seriously confusing people, and we're adding extra elements that we like typically wouldn't have to prove. So it actually makes our job harder. Um, so strategically, that's something else that we would factor in. Like, is it really worth it if we're going after this person? They're looking at life imprisonment. Do we want to run the risk of confusing the jury and, um, you know, and risking an acquittal? Um, so so that's another factor. Um, there is one thing I did want to say, though. Like, I, I understand the sentiment, like, beyond being able to prove, here's this fact. We know it. We feel it. And I've, I know exactly what you mean. I just... Do you guys know what, like, what do they call it now? Like doom scrolling when you're just. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I used to do My that f- with them. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, no. Just I, I, 2020 was just like a year of exactly that. I don't think I did anything but doom scroll that year. <laughs> um, I did doom scrolling before of New York uh, delivery men. And this mm. is even when Yellow World was up and running. It was. We started it in when I was in law school up in uh, back in 2001, I want to say. And then it went on until it officially shut down in like 08. So if the issue was even, you know, present, prevalent back then. And I used to I used to cry <laughs> reading those because there, mm-hmm. there were some very terrible um, stories. And it, so- it seemed very unfair, like whether we can prove that race was the motivating factor, it was affecting our community and there wasn't any attention and it was, it it was scary that it was happening on such a frequent basis. Um, And so one thing that, you know, we tried to do here that I've personally tried to do, and here's where it gets confusing. And, you know, I think it's worth discussing is, okay, so even if a hate crime is not alleged, but we know that um, the victim is Asian and there's this on, you know, there's this current climate, even, that people should be aware of. Um, we've asked for, um, in some cases where, uh, like in, in the juvenile setting, uh, where the youth is being sentenced or, uh, we call it disposition when they're being disposed, we've asked for some, some sort of like educational component to it. Um, in one case we asked for the youth to watch for the court to order, um, uh, episodes of Asian Americans, the PBS, series uh, for the youth to watch that and to write essays about each one. So we just wanted to add on like an educational, like know and understand who this person is that you victimized type of component um, uh, so that, you know, we're we're using this as a tool to kind of one by one educate the youth uh, who come into the system so they don't go on to, or they think twice, right? when they're in this situation again, and there's an Asian person before them. Um, and the, the, the difficulty in making these requests, both in juvenile court and in adult, and this is in California and and elsewhere too, is that, um, when we're asking for an order or condition of probation, there has to be a nexus to the crime. Um, and so a lot of the times we'll get this question of like from the judge, well, there's no hate crime alleged. So why should I order this? So that's kind of, you know, what we're running into is that even um, in those instances where, you know, 
yes, we may not be, it may not be enough for us to charge the hate crime, but we're just trying to use this as an opportunity to educate. Um, you know, we're not, we're being kind of shut down there too. Because it's, they're linking it to saying to the hate crime again. To say they're linking it, it to it, the hate it, crime that, that, that wouldn't be relevant to learn about Asian Americans if this wasn't a hate crime. Correct. Yeah, and I mean, then, I think, mm-hmm. yeah. Sorry. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're right. I think that uh, my experience here in New York, just following this crime wave against Asians, is that whenever there's um, and like this happened to Evelyn Yang, you know, um, uh, Andrew mm-hmm. Andrew Yang's wife, and she's been very outspoken about what's going on um, in terms of crime against Asians. And I forgot who it was, but like she got, she was getting like really publicly. Uh, sort of manhandled by like uh, some white, some like white blue checked accounts that were saying there's no indication of race, mo- race in these crimes, right? Like, they, like I think it was Michelle Go. They're like, there's no indication that Michelle Go was pushed because she was Asian. There was no hate. Like, and then they would they would cite to um, uh, the media reports that said that there is no indicate. You know, there 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 that that the police had not uh, said that race was a motive motivation to this crime. Because they're already thinking about hate crime charges, like even in just investigating the crime, and the the, the result of that, and and I had asked Safan Kim this question on Twitter, like why do you const- why do is it that when you report stories, you um, will either say that there was no um, indication that race was a factor, or that there was. And he said, oh, it's because that these those facts are relevant to, you know, how they're going to investigate and prosecute the crime. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And and I understand what he's saying. I, un- I accepted his explanation for that, I think. But I, I also think that it's completely distorting the way regular people are thinking and talking about this because they have assumed that that is the official determination, the most reliable determination um, as to whether there actually is a crime wave against Asian people. And that's why I think it took so long for people here, at least in New York, not only to believe it themselves, but then to convince others that this was happening. And it had to become, you know, we had to get to like, I mean, even with like the murder of Christina Yuna Lee, there was still this like, well, there was no indication that he followed her because he was Asian or because she, she was Asian. And I'm just, I guess I'm just really tired of having to, to litigate this when if you just zoom out away from the facts of any individual one case it's clear there is a pattern and we're being targeted and i i'm not particularly interested in you know ret- uh, retribution here uh to be like oh you get an extra lash if if if, if it was because you don't like asians no I, I think it's more important just for the community and for people and for the city at large to admit that this is a problem that asian people need to be protected and they need to protect themselves and be more aware. It took too long for that message to get out. And that, that, that's why I think a lot of people, there, there might've been more victims than there needed to be simply because we were busy debating this hate crime charge, which is a very legalistic thing that I, I don't think that the average person should really care about. You know? Right. Right. Maybe the, I mean, I agree with you. Um, and why are we looking at just one system to be the response to what's going on? Uh, but I, I, you know, I'm going to throw in two things that kind of complicate the issues, but I, I want to echo what you say that this is an ongoing feeling that, you know, even I've had for a long, long time. And it's um, part of it is just, you know, um, 
when we hear about these crimes, it part of what kind of exacerbates it is just the, the fact that there's ongoing racism in general against the Asian American community that that is largely ignored and were ignored. <laughs> so, you know, mm-hmm. that's I think that's part of it. And then um, do you do you guys remember that one song? Um, it's like this rap song about going into Chinese homes and burglarizing. Yeah. And yes. MPK. Yeah. Yes. It actually talks about MPK. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah. So, you know, like there's, there's stuff like that, that would lead us to believe that this is go- that we're being targeted. Right. So there's that, but then a couple of factors, I think complicate it. And one is um, just the population. Like I think when we talk about New York and San Francisco, one, one thing that people kind of don't consider is just the, the sheer numbers of Asians that we have here. So I actually don't know the numbers for New York, but in San Francisco, we have we actually have less than a million people uh, who are residents of San Francisco. We have about 800, 880,000 residents. Um, and of those, 34% are Asian. Um, and uh, I want to say like 24% are Chinese with the majority Cantonese speaking. So we're talking about like well over a hundred thousand Chinese people. Um, and, and that's just overall, but and I don't know if they've actually broken down the numbers to look at um, different communities. So like more low income communities, uh, you know, I would guess have more, um, you know, Chinese uh, families there too. It's just, you know, families of color. I grew up in San Francisco and I actually grew up in one of the zip codes that it's one of the four zip codes that they say are most um, impacted by violent crime. Um, And I I know that there were a lot of Chinese families where, um, where I grew up. So, so that there's that too, is that they're just the sheer numbers. It isn't, you know, it's, it, it wouldn't be hard to find victims of crime who are Asian. And that's, it's not something recent. It's just, it's, that's, that's just the nature of, you know, the demographics and the fact that crime occurs. So that's one thing. Um, And, uh, and, you know, the, the other thing is like social media has kind of drawn a lot more attention to this, but crime has, crime has always been around us and it's, it has, never been pretty like it's you know hearing reading about somebody being robbed um uh in the papers is very different from watching the video and seeing it play out and seeing somebody get physically hurt um the second you know the latter draws a much different reaction from us and especially so if that person looks like our grandma or grandpa or or something like that so that's another distinction and um to to kind of um like, I, I guess, uh, it further explain like how this is like when I say like crime has always been around us, you know, I was, I, this is kind of my job for many, many years. I've been part of the criminal legal system. Um, it, it was like, it was my second job out of law school. I was a legal aid attorney before. Um, but in, and I was down in Los Angeles practicing. So in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, in New York, in most jurisdictions, in urban areas, um, their district attorney offices uh, are usually, you know, they usually have about like 
100 or more district attorneys. In Los Angeles, they have over, I want to say, 800 district attorneys. And most district attorneys are case carrying. Um, so that means, you know, they're carrying sometimes on average 100, 50 to 100 cases. Um, and there's never been a shortage of cases. And so that's for DA offices. And then the flip side is true for PD offices too. Um, public defender offices have hundreds of attorneys. In LA, they have like 800. Up here, they probably have about 100 to 150. In New York, there, you know, I actually don't know, but I think there are probably hundreds would be, um, you know, ballpark. <laughs> um, and all of these people are usually overworked. Um, they usually have high caseloads. And then in some jurisdictions, there are also alternate public defender offices. So in addition to the PD's office with their hundred of attorneys, there's the alternate PD's with another 50 to 100 attorneys, all with full caseloads. And then on top of that, there are private attorneys who, you know, there's still cases to go around for private attorneys to be hired on. And um, so if you look at it like that, there's there's always like hundreds of thousands of pending cases. So not hundreds of thousands, but there are thousands of pending cases. Um, and it's been that way. And uh, I think, you know, unless you're doing this work and you're like seeing the underbelly of the community, you're, you're safely like sheltered from, from this. Um, and we have been until recently. So um, do you feel like there is some media manipulation in that case of the narrative around uh, anti-Asian crime? I, f I think there is some cherry picking and, you know, with the media too, like, you know, with their network ratings matter too, right? So, um, you know, I'm not sure if that was a driving factor in the past, why they didn't focus on Asian crimes. It felt like, you know, these things were happening before and they were concerning before, like the the New York delivery men cases and um, some of the more high profile cases that you guys have talked about here in the past didn't make it to primetime news. So, mm -hmm. um, and now they have, and it may be because, you know, some people led the way and it's drawn the attention of the larger population. And now it, 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 you know, they're justified in kind of, um, talking about these stories in the media. So I, I don't know. I'm, this is all speculation, but I think, um, yeah, I think that these are kind of reported more than they were before. And I think there are crimes against other communities that are happening every day also um, that also don't get the same attention. So in San Francisco, we release, but, and this is like, all of this is kind of, um, complicated by other issues, but we release uh, uh, the stats of victims every year and the racial makeup. Um, and every year it's the black and brown communities that are disproportionately impacted. Um, and then white next and then Asian was actually the lowest number of Asians served. When I say lowest, it, it I just, that's the percentage, but it was still like well over um, a thousand Asian victims last year. So it's not like a low number. It's just lowest in terms of, um, like in comparison to the other groups, but it's complicated by the fact that there may be um, under reporting also. Um, mm -hmm. I was going to ask. Yeah. yeah Are you saying exactly. lowest in terms of rate or lowest in terms of like total number, gross number? Um, 
lowest in terms of total number. Mm-hmm. Is that is that I mean, if you scale it for population, though, because I think um, like per capita. Um, yeah. Incidents I, per capita. I, I just, it's just I think there's the I just felt like, to be honest, that there was just a there was a lot of pushback when Asian people were saying, like, there there seems to be um, a specific targeting of us now and linked to things like COVID and the xenophobia and anti-Asian um, sentiment that sort of seemed to take hold in society at from top to bottom. And when people brought that up, uh, I, I feel like there was a tension between people who wanted to highlight uh, crimes against Asian people as, a, as this growing phenomenon versus people saying like, well, Asians are relatively privileged when it comes to crime anyway, because we're not targeted as much overall compared to other groups. And then even worse than that was this very awkward, um, this very awkward reaction to when the killer in particular was black versus if they were either Hispanic or white, where I think, at least with Asians who in urban areas especially are, you know, pro- like progressively aligned and uh, don't feel so comfortable calling out crimes where the attacker is black, which is only, you know, it's only a portion of the cases versus when the attacker is not black. Mm-hmm. And that became a very at least within the way Asian people were talking about this became one of the most divisive uh, topics. Mm-hmm. And I, I still don't have a good answer as to how to go about it other than to say that um, I do think that there is it, there the, the, per, the perfect crime, so to speak um, in terms of our ability to call it out and was, was Atlanta. Because mm-hmm. the and I think that's the why, why that one gets brought up all the time. One, it was horrific. Two, there was a fairly clear racial motivation. But I think the third factor was that the killer was white, and that just made it much easier to call out for, by Asian Americans who are progressively aligned versus um, something like you know a crime like um, either Michelle Goh or Christina Unalee in New York, where the killers were black and. Calling it out just, I think on both, I I think there was an immediate awkwardness as to how to de- how to do how to deal with that. I mean, that this is a problem that's gone back all the way for a long time, but at least to the '92 riots in LA, where this was a major issue too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't yeah, have a specific I mean, question. A, I just from, want to tee that issue because it's a tough one for me. Yeah, it's a really messy discourse. Um, so. Um, I mean, and ultimately, you know, the way people were talking about it, you know, when the when the perpetrator is, say, is non-white, let's let's say, let's just leave it. Um, 
when the perpetrator is non-white, you suddenly see a lot more people advocating for like restorative justice, uh, rehabilitative justice. At you know, mentions of anti-carceral, anti-carcerality, or like anti-carceral politics comes up versus say you know the Atlanta shootings when you know this, these same people were basically saying lock him up and throw away the key if we're not going to just outright you know capital you know given the capital treatment. Yes. Yes. Um, so obviously that's you know that's that can't stand as a as a legal uh basis for administering justice right because that that really does imply that the race of the perpetrator mediates the severity of the crime mm-hmm. um, right. mm-hmm. um I was hoping you could shed some light on the like there's there's the, there's what the public there's the, there's a the public discourse and there is the process of law i think we're getting i think it gets really messy when we try to blend the when we mix it up like what the what the law is structured to do um and not do versus what we what we want as a community as just like everyday people yeah and i i think i understand what you mean i just wanted to uh touch on something briefly that because i don't want this to be lost but going back to um the makeup of the victims in San Francisco, even when we scale it, I I do want to say because Asian Americans uh, or Asians make up still like the 34% and that's comparable to the, to uh, the white population here, whereas the black population makes up less than 5% um, and Hispanic is less than 15%. So given those numbers and the fact that there are more, um, black and brown individuals who are coming into our system as victims. I I just wanted to point that out there that it's what we see on the ground. And I see this just, you know, on the day to day, like just reviewing police reports and so on. What we see on the ground is different from what is um, kind of being shown in the media. So, so I did want to put that out there, not to minimize any of the crimes that, that involve Asian American victims, because, you know, that's, to me, that's still something that's, you know, it's it's still my community and I, it's something that needs to be addressed, but it's important to kind of point these things out because it, it's, it, again, it kind of impacts the response um, that we should have as a community or a system to, to what's going on. So there's that. And then in terms of, I understand the frustration too, like why, um, People seem a little bit more hesitant to talk about things when, um, it, and I think you know when it's a uh, when the person who committed the harm is a black person, um, and you know why is this happening is the question. I actually, don't uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I see it. I I see it too. Like kind of what you're talking about. Like in when you talk about like the the blue checks, right? The uh, high-profile API accounts on Twitter. Um, And and so I see that too. I'm not sure of why there's there's this divide. Um, But I also don't know if we need to have this divide. Like, I don't think a person's race necessarily, like, you know, you know, I don't, I don't really see this as like a black on Asian problem or a white on Asian problem. Um, is that oh for sure mm-hmm. that's a that's a good yeah that's been my framework for trying to understand this um I, th- I it always seemed that like oh sorry um my phone just went off um it always seemed like um people were focusing 
putting an excess amount of attention on the race of the perpetrator when the, the real question is uh, right protecting preventing violence against Asians that's 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 agnostic to you know any characteristic of the perpetrator we're just trying to say you know we want to make sure Asians do not suffer from violence that's a that's a pretty like race neutral position um it's um so over 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 i don't know highlighting the the race of the perpetrator seemed almost like a deflection from the basic problem at stake here um, you know yeah although now that i'm thinking about it too like maybe another way we could talk about this is um you know in san francisco uh we have a lot of groups in low-income neighborhoods living in close proximity to each other and one one such place is chinatown um chinatown used to be very insular and we have projects here um, section 8 housing called the pings and um maybe in the past decade we've that uh, they changed policies or whatever and more black families have moved into the pings um and so that happened but i don't think that uh, you know i i'm not I don't actually work in Chinatown, so I don't, I can't say for sure, but it doesn't feel like the families um, have been fully like integrated into the community. So Chinatown is still as insular um, as before, but then we have these families living here that are supposed to be um, treating Chinatown like their home. And, uh, but then there's this racial tension um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and people are not addressing it. And we do have, um, and, and these are very low income people, like on both, you know, both the victims and, um, you know, the, the, the kids who live there, uh, come from very low income families they are in section eight housing. Um, and so there's this issue, um, and there are crimes being committed against Asian American, mostly Chinese victims. And the, the question is like, what is the response in, in a case like this, when you do see a pattern, um, and it's because of, you know, how they're living in close proximity to each other, the fact that um, these are very, very poor families. Um, and, uh, you know, and these groups don't necessarily understand each other. So uh, what would be the right response in this case, right? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And, yeah. and and the, you know, and that, that's kind of where I wanted to touch on, like, when we say, like, <clears throat> different issues call for different responses. Um, in a case like this, like, where we, even if you do see, like, a pattern, like, there are three Asian, like, three Chinese stores that have been targeted now. Um, and, you know, even when there is that pattern, is the appropriate response, you know, uh, where possible, adding a hate crime enhancement and, uh, you know, as a deterrence? Um, or is it like education, like that, you know, learn about your this community, learn about the history of Chinatown and Angel Island and Chinese exclusion and have more respect for, you know, this group? Or is it, um, you know, community investment? That's That's a huge thing. And I think that's kind of where people are concerned, people who actually work in the system are concerned um, with this kind of, uh, you know, the media narrative. I think it, it drives a certain it, uh, response that may not necessarily be productive. 
when, um, you know, and it drives the response away from it further investing in the community. And, um, you know, could it be that like investing in the community, um, offering more programs for youth, job readiness, um, making sure that we're disrupting any pipeline between, uh, you know, from uh, school to the prison system, uh, you know, or or is it a combination of those things? Um, yeah, that's a that touches on a good uh, on a good point that I wanted to to talk over uh, with you um, is it seems like the reporting and the 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 conversation around uh, anti Asian crime is ideologically motivated in a few different directions. So there's no such so in my opinion there has never been like a pure factual reporting on this. Everything do, if we just accept that every every incident of crime that is reported on and discussed serves a particular um, ideological position, I think it actually made it a lot simpler for me to think through the issue. Um, just over the last few years, um, I, I think I see like three kind of ideological um, positions regarding the issue of Asian crime. That's largely that largely skips over the fact of the crime and is and is aimed at well, what should we do about it? What should society look like in a just in a more just world uh, that um, in which these crimes would not be happening? Um, so, um, and three, the three buckets that I see, uh, if you see others or disagree, I'd love to hear it. Um, but one, uh, is, and, and I think these are, you know, largely class-based in, 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 um, but, you know, the first one is uh, anti-Asian crime is actually not a systemically pervasive issue to the extent that it warrants, you know, uh, intervention and intervention by the law, law enforcement or criminal justice, like, uh, it's just not it's just not uh, above the line in terms of what we should do as far as uh, legal ramifications for said crimes. We don't need to rethink that. Uh, second is, you know, the op basically the opposite of that is anti-Asian crime is the dominant issue faced by uh, Asians and Asian Americans and resources. And because it is the dominant issue, uh, we need to be, by implication, we need to be investing public resources into um, like criminal justice and law enforcement in particular in order to uh, both punish crime and deter it, to prevent it from happening um, and this deserves this deserves society's highest attention and resource allocation. Um, and the third one is kind of this uh, midway point is that anti-Asian crime is a real problem, but any solution that uh, that is presented and um, enacted should avoid should sidestep, you know, like empowering um, law enforcement or criminal justice to be even more punitive than it is now. Um, this is, I guess, this is where like anti-carceral politics, restorative justice, um, community defense uh, comes in. But people who largely think that it acknowledge that it is a problem, but that the solutions kind of sidestep the entire, um, you know, legal system, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, is that a fair like summary summary of the different ideological tacks people have taken? Yeah, and that's it's really helpful to see it in that way. Um, mm -hmm. um, so, in that sense, mm -hmm. like of the three, the um, the one that has the most potential for manipulation, like by the media or by you know the powers of the be, 
is actually the second one, where is a where anti Asian crime is a serious serious issue, and it deserves public investment of money and power, uh, and other resources into law enforcement and uh, criminal justice because that's where a lot of the a lot of money resides. Correct. Um, I um, agree with that. Mm-hmm. So, do you see? Do, um, so, some as someone inside the system. Um, do you see the potential for um, for manipulation there, uh, or do you see that it it is happening? That narratives so, are shaped to kind of to kind of uh, encourage people to you know vote a certain way or support policies that uh, that do X or Y that, in your opinion, um, might not be productive or counterproductive to the interests of the Asian community. Yeah, I I do see it's been happening. Um, so I definitely see it happening. And just very simply, like a, a context to understand it is like when a crime happens in a jurisdiction where there is a progressive prosecutor, then all of a sudden um, when there's reporting, there's uh, reporting also on, you know, the history of, of the perpetrator. Like um, has this, you know, what's the current, probation, parole status of this person, stuff that the reporter normally wouldn't get. And that's stuff that we as prosecutors aren't allowed to talk about even because um, it's protected information. But all, all of a sudden um, <clears throat> that that information would be out in public. Whereas if it's happening um, in a jurisdiction with kind of a law and order prosecutor, then it's just reported on. But um, and we would know on our end whether or not the person is justice involved already, um, already has a record, may have a pending case or whatever, but we're not, uh, the media is not reporting on it um, and we're not allowed to touch on it. So so it's skewed, right? It, it, it gives this impression that progressive prosecutors are failing because, um, you know, they're Look at all these these people are, who are committing crimes and they're on probation already or they had a pending case and they were released or something like that. But in reality, it's it's because of the reporting. Wait, I, I, sorry, I want to get I want to ask, uh, follow that up, like because this is definitely a dynamic in New York where um, the I forgot his name. Nash, I think, was the guy who had killed, raped and murdered um, Christina. You know, Lee, and he I think they had focused on sort of his priors and that there was an outstanding. Um, I mean, I point to this as an example, right? There's a couple examples. One was that where it was a very serious and and, and you know, I mean, insanely brutal crime mm-hmm. where it, he he had a, he had been arrested for uh, a pretty violent assault on another man. Uh, at the subway station across the street. Mm-hmm. And the media had sort of located the victim of that crime, which is a, you know older gentleman who had said that it was pretty... Uh, he was like, I was surprised that they let him out after that attack. And so I think people were pointing to, to that to say that wasn't this a clear case where she would be alive had he not been, uh, you know... Uh, out on the streets. And then another case was recently, this was not an Asian victim, but it was a, I think it was a Hispanic lady who had, um, there was a video of her sitting on the bench at a subway station and a guy walks up and just sort of shoves uh, 
mm-hmm. basically a sack of shit in her face. Mm-hmm. And th- that was a horrific crime, right? I mean, it, like, it's just ter- terrible um, mm-hmm. that that might happen to someone. Uh, literally like a bag of human feces and he rubbed it into her hair and just just awful. Uh, and he was um, he was just sort of free to go on his own recognizance after they had booked him and, and arraigned him. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of public outcry, I think justifiably in New York, to say, what what does it take to actually get these people off the streets? I know this is like a very... When I say that, I think there's automatically um, a recoil by people who feel like this is... We're turning back towards the Giuliani era of get tough on crime and, and you know, we're gonna just going to go clean out the streets and stuff. But I think... In these cases, isn't it reasonable to think like, you know, and I saw local news, um, the media did have a very negative reaction to this, but I think because people had a very negative reaction to it to say, what do you mean he's just free to go? How, how, if I did that to someone, I would not expect to just be like, you know, that day, just walk right out of court, you know, with a promise to show up for my trial or whatever. Like, I don't know, that just seemed... Like, I, I certainly would not want to be around this guy, uh, you know, and having known that that's what he did. Yeah. So, so when you when you said all, you touched on a lot of things, one thing is like, you know, there's a I think sometimes it's important to or it's interesting, at least to to kind of uh, look closely at these things and read between the lines. But like, how is it that that media, the media was able to find that other person sitting across the street? Um and and then get their phone number and be able to get in touch with them and interview them and so on. So this is, you know, it, that's what I mean by there's kind of more driving all of this because that's not usually information that's just readily available. Um, I, I mean, I presume maybe that that prior victim had reached out to the media himself is my guess as to how that's a huge presumption. Yeah, because I'll tell you on this side here, just working with victims. Um, but wait, but, but get, are you saying that they shouldn't have that information? It, like that we shouldn't know about that or, you know? No, I'm I, not I think, saying that the public doesn't have, uh, but I'm, I'm saying that when we're talking about like what, what stories make it to the media uh, and then make it to the public, right? Um, and, and who kind of shapes, how are those stories shaped and who shapes well, those stories? Yes, but I think with Christina Unali, I mean, in all fairness, that was such a horrific crime that it, I think that, there is a strong public interest in knowing all of the facts here and wondering why, what could, could there have been anything done from a criminal justice perspective to have prevented it? Or was this unavoidable? And I think the importance of what that guy said was that, you know, this wasn't just um, a guy with priors of like turnstile jumping or, you know, even like petty theft or robbery, let's say, petty crimes like, you know, stealing someone's wallet or something. But this, he, he said he was like violently assaulted. Uh, you know, he was punched in the face. Um, and that he felt that the media up to that point, I think he's, this was his point. He was like, up to that point, the media had sort of not really understood the ser- severity of that crime. The, the, the media at that point was just saying, oh, it was a whole bunch of petty crimes. Uh-huh. So we had no idea that he was capable of something like this. And I think the, the guy was trying to say, no, the, this was a very violent thing that was done to me. Um, and the public interest here is strong, I think, because 
we are, I mean, let's face it, we are debating whether the bail reforms of 2019 have exacerbated the problem or not. I don't know the answer, but this is certainly something that people are worried about. And it's way beyond just Asian people. Like he said, I mean, maybe the story is that we're just new to the game. You know, we were like immune to crime before. And now we've got, I think that's the story that's taking hold is, well, Asians have, have not really been uh, victimized so much before. And now you're, You've got a taste of what the rest of us are living like. Okay, fine. That's that's the story. I'll I'll go by that. I don't really care. Um, but now that we are uh, awake to the dangers, um, you know, I I I I feel like it is a disservice to people to say Christina Unilee's murder was an Asian American issue. This was a citywide issue mm-hmm. that. Um, I don't what's my question here or or what's my point is I feel like the public for for purposes of the legal proceedings I understand that there is a very, real sensitivity as to what information gets out because you know we don't want to poison the jury pool and we don't want to introduce um bias that could really fuck up the prosecution um again I don't think that these things are necessarily designed to protect um you know the reputation <laughs> to protect uh um the accused in every case i think sometimes it it is actually to protect um the viability of the prosecution uh but i I don't know i just feel like we should know these things you know because it's scary what happened to her is fucking frightening and if do you know what i mean i don't know yeah 100 percent agree you know i I think there's a difference though and this is there's a difference between what the public is interested, you know, public interest, um, as opposed to, uh, like how the, how stories are shaped, um, and kind of how narratives are shaped. So I think it's kind of two different things that we're talking about. Like once that's, that information's out there, you know, is it, of course the public is going to be interested, but if we're comparing it to an incident that happened in another jurisdiction, um, that, uh, you know, does not have, um, you know, a progressive prosecutor or doesn't fit that narrative that, that they're trying to put forth. Is it, are those, is that information reported on in that story as well? Uh, for example, in San Francisco, you know, there are crimes, um, recent crimes that have happened that with Asian victims, but um, not necessarily with, uh, well, you know, with Asian perpetrators. Um, and those crimes are not making the news, um, even though they, they could be just as, you know, once reported on the media, maybe, or the public may be just as interested. Um, but another thing to talk about when we're talking, you know, kind of another thing to uh, throw in there that's, that's further kind of confuses the issue or makes it more complicated is the fact that this all happened um, during the pandemic. We're still coming out of this pandemic, right? And so when the pandemic happened, um, a lot of people were released from prison and jails just because we we didn't want to have people, um, we wanted to avoid a high number of people in congregate settings, right? So where people could have been released, they were released. And courts kind of changed the approach that they took on, um, on detention and release issues in court. So that's one thing is that, you know, the pandemic really changed um, you know, how 
policies and, and practices on how, how people were detained um, while cases are pending. And, you know, you don't, we, we can just look at the San Francisco Juvenile Hall. Prior to the pandemic, uh, there were 40 to 50, sometimes up to 60 kids in custody. Uh, this is like immediately before. And then afterwards now, it's been consistently between 15. Um, yeah, sometimes lower than 15, like between 10 to 20. So it's a huge drop. Uh, and that's directly related to the pandemic. And uh, the other thing to look at too, is that, um, you know, with what, when you talked about the, you know, the um, person rubbing feces into the victim's face, absolutely, that's disgusting. And, um, you know, it's, it's terrible. And then the, at the same time within, we're also experiencing nationwide a mental health crisis. Um, and that that's also related to the pandemic and people don't really understand why that is. I, I don't think it's really been articulated, um, but it's, it's because like when we look at like kids, right? Like when the pandemic started and there was remote learning, uh, the kids who kind of really fell through the cracks were special education kids. The kids who needed like one-on-one -on -one attention mm -hmm. in classrooms and, and especially the low income um, special education kids who they, their parents don't know how to turn on a computer and, um, you know, and then go online and do all this stuff on like the Chromebooks right. that they were given. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's that. And then if you look at it in the mental health context, all, all these people who were supposed to be seeing like regularly, uh, going into clinics, had case managers, had, um, clinicians and, and their, their medication was being monitored all of a sudden that was taken away. Um, and a lot of these community-based clinics kind of went remote and not everyone had a smartphone or, or computer or knew how to you know, use those devices to, to do telehealth. Um, and uh, we're, as a nation, we're experiencing the impact of that now. Yeah, I think the stat that really blew my mind that I saw recently and it shows, I think, the depth of this problem and why, in my opinion, the criminal justice system has been overburdened with solving this when I don't think uh, any, I don't think any one city in America can solve this. I think this is a much deeper problem than, than exists at a city level because it's happening in cities, yes, but it's also happening in multiple cities all at the same time. So I don't think this is like a San Francisco issue or a New York issue. I think it's something deeper than a regional issue. And I don't think that the cities are going to be able to solve this um, at the root. I think they can, you know, we can address it. It can try and mitigate it. But the real problems I don't think have to do with police or the, or the you know, courts. Um. The stat that really blew my mind was that, one, over 50% of children who go through the foster care system will experience homelessness in their life. Mm -hmm. And at any given time, 50% of the homeless population at any given time went through the foster system. So it seemed to me just hearing that or just thinking about that is that you know, a large part of like the homeless population in America seems to be 
people who have simply aged out of the foster care system. Mm-hmm. And that is just tragic because it points to the problem really being about like the disintegration of family. And, uh, you know, no police force, no uh, DA's office is going to be able to address that. I, I just think that's just too deep a problem that we need a much bigger rethinking and response to that. And so I guess I'll I'm just kind of at... Was that? Um, I think I'll echo that. Uh, just mm. seeing what the response and I, I I'm, I'm I want to be empathetic. This is these are horrific problems that hits people at a very very deep. It hits me at a very deep personal, at a deep personal level. So the instinct is of course you know protection and uh, and justice, uh, but it's also saying like okay so, pulling it back to like like d- discussion on you know if a crime was a hate crime or not. That's all. That's almost and overburdening the legal system by saying like, okay, if you charge just one person for a hate crime, uh, you're kind of indicting an entire community that this person is from while assuming, while um, in, while assuming that, you know, the hate crime designation for this crime kind of is like a community protection for everyone else who was not a victim of that crime. So it's like community level uh, justice being sought through the vehicle of like an individual crime. Uh, this is not fair for either the victim or the perpetrator. This is not what our legal system was designed for. I don't think it's. I don't think it's correct. I don't think it's sound uh, to to act like it like uh, like it's to prosecute or litigate group justice uh, here. Um, but I feel like con- the conversation keeps getting corralled into that. Like we now we're, we're pr- strictly locked into talk about whether do we want more law enforcement or not. Like those are the only two binaries here. Uh, and there's just so much. There's just so much potential. There's so much money at stake. Like all of mm-hmm. all three cities that we that we are living in ex- had record breaking uh, budget increases over the last couple of years, despite you know the defund the police movement and all of that. Um, without seeing much of a tangible reduction in actual crime occurring on the ground. So I think that does deserve a lot of scrutiny when, when um, conversation about individual crime seems to be corralled, it like strictly locked into a binary here without any, um, without any like pulling, pulling back to talk about what a broader, what a broader, um, what a broader solution might be. That's completely outside uh, criminal justice. Like mm-hmm. that just doesn't seem to be part of the conversation at all. It's simply, do you want to give the cops more money or not? And an entire politics kind of shapes around that kind of broken discourse. Right. And that's kind of why, why, why I talked about like, the, that's why conflating the, the issues really is dangerous because the different issues do call, call for different responses. Like racism, definitely, you know, it's been ongoing. It's still, it's still ongoing and that has to be addressed but in terms of these crimes that we're seeing, um, for some of them, and going back to what Tien just said, um, you know, the that's the, to in the juvenile delinquency system, um, the one statistic is that's often thrown out is that eighty percent, um, and in San Francisco, it's even higher than that. But eighty percent, at least, uh, have experienced one traumatic uh, event in their life. Um, uh, so walking into juvenile court, like the kids that we see oftentimes, and sometimes it's just one right after another. It's not unusual to go through like a morning's calendar and it's like, you know, child one, um, you know, had saw his, his dad get shot and killed in front of him. Child two, um, dad is in prison, oh mom's a victim of DV. 
um, child free lost his brother to gun violence. It's it's not unusual at all to go through a morning like that. In, in fact, it's typical. Um, and a lot of these kids are crossover kids, meaning they're part of the foster system. Um, and uh, while in the crossover, while in the foster system, committed a crime, and now they're in the delinquency system as well. And so they are part of both both systems at the same time. Um, and the question is like, you know, do what do we do with these kids when they come into the system? They're faced with a crime. Um, and then, you know, when we see, when we have a community that's very angry, right, they're, they see the crimes, they're watching the videos over and over on social media, and they're calling for a certain response. Um, you know, is the response to just lock up and throw the key away or knowing what we know about the root causes? Um, but also beyond that, also, you know, what works and what doesn't work. There's a lot of research um, in, in that area, too. Do we, you know, do we do what the research tells us is effective um, and, or, you know, do we go back to kind of our old ways of just, you know, uh, incarceration and, uh, and you no know, services, the person's released again, and then it becomes a revolving door. So, so that's kind of what we're faced with. And it, it is, um, it, it's complicated by the fact that a lot of the money is sitting in uh maintaining our jail system right now um, and not so much in the community. So when we say like, you know, if we say like, well, we, we think we want to um, invest in the community and, and help this youth, um, you know, they've come into the system because they robbed somebody, right? Um, we want to get them very robust services and have them supervised on a daily basis with by a case manager and, um, we want to, you know, we want a full plan where their entire week is filled filled with um, supervision, case management, and enrichment activities, and uh, mentoring, and and so on, and doing everything we can to make sure that young person doesn't become a homeless person, homeless adult later on. Um, you know, when when we say that, we also have to look at like, well, who who are these community organizations that can provide these services, and how much are they actually being paid? Um, as opposed to like how much money, uh, you know, are we giving juvenile hall right now and, um, how much money does it cost to maintain the hall and, and the staff, um, on an annual basis, it costs $12 million to maintain juvenile hall in San Francisco. And at that time, um, when that number was thrown out, this is two years ago, um, there were, you know, about, like I said, 40 to 60 kids. With that amount of money, um, if we had actually, you know, taken it out of the, uh, you know, juvenile hall, um, if we could invest just even a fraction of that, just millions of dollars in supporting those kids, I think we would be in a very different place. And so there's kind of that tension that we have right now is, um, you know, with all of this media attention on crime and a very angry, rightfully, um, Asian American community that's calling for, you know, an immediate response and a certain response. Um, it, it takes away from the work that's happening on the ground, like actually trying to um, reform the system so that more money is being poured into resources to support justice-involved people. I I agree with that. I think the problem, though, is that we're taking an either-or approach. Um, 
And part of it, and just in advocating, because I, I do think that your your average uh, Chinatown resident just doesn't have a strong voice. And so I personally feel like when we talk about it, I try to advocate for, from their perspective more than I do anyone else's because everyone else has a strong voice. Uh, you know, the DAs have a strong voice. The police have a strong voice. Um, the residents of Chinatown do not. And what I've noticed is that the it is framed as an either or saying, you know, we can't go back to our carceral uh, solutions we have to think about alternative ways like mental health services and things, which I, to be honest, I don't even think when people in New York say that, that it really means what people think it means. I think that is also a carceral solution because we're not talking about going to, you know, see your um, uh, therapist every week. You know, we're talking about like mental institutionalization. And so I think uh, the either or approach is to say, uh, yeah, the, the solution here is not stepped up law enforcement. It's not revisiting bail reform. It's not looking at, you know, could we have prevented some of these horrific crimes? Um, the answer is more education or the answer is addressing uh, mental health at an early age. And that sets up this either or because I think the people who are like, no, there were only like three weeks that separated Michelle Goh's murder from Christina Yunali's murder. We had three weeks to see if we could do anything to prevent that next one. And you know, um, addressing longer term issues is, has no effect um, between, you know, the last crime that happened in New York City and the next one that's going to happen. Um, and so I think the position is like, yo, screw these long term, uh, you know, address root causes type of things, because we're talking about things that are happening every day. Um, mm-hmm. And so I guess I see it personally as like we do we we need definitely a long-term rethink of how we deal with poverty and broken families and mental health crisis that i think is a result of that but we also need short-term solutions because these these uh murders and attacks are happening almost daily in new york and so i don't i don't see how we got ourselves into this either or thing where it's like you know, it can't be carceral. It must be this, or you know, nobody wants more jails. Least of all, Chinatown in New York City, because they're going to build, they're going to rebuild the prison. Um, they're going to close down Rikers and rebuild the prison in Chinatown. Um, at the same time, they're telling everyone in Chinatown that carceral solutions are not the fix, but you're going to have to host a new prison. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, I can see just the sheer amount of frustration and the the sort of um, bewilderness as to like how come we can't talk about law enforcement as part of the solution? How come we can't talk about revisiting bail reform as part of the solution? And at the same time, talk about longer term uh, changes. It's I just I don't I don't see the either or. Um, yeah, thing. It seems extraordinarily cruel to be being able to say that. In, to me, reads as. Um, you yourself and your loved ones being at somewhat of a physical remove from the the epicenter of the of of uh, where these uh, these crimes are happening, um, saying you know X is not the answer, um, does nothing to protect um, a, a grandma a grandmother in a low income area who does need to go out into the street to go grocery shopping or you know even work, um, and can and does. W- what answer is that for her? 
Right. Yeah, I mean, even just, I mean, even for myself, uh, you know, I feel like if I say something about, if I go into, because, you know, I got to say the Christina Unali thing is one of the most horrific crimes I've ever read uh, read about. And it, it really, it, it was brutal to just think about it. And I, and I was like, I, to me, it was like, I, this is beyond, something has to be done here. And um, I felt like if we started talking about the priors on the guy that that her murderer that that necess- that that set me up to be to, to accusations that I just didn't care about homeless people and I, I don't know where that comes from I don't know why I I immediately by talking about this case and this the you know the suspect by talking about it, I am therefore against or anti-black and anti-homeless. I don't care about any of that stuff because he is black and he was homeless, right? So I feel like that was the unfortunate result of there being this unnecessary split between wanting a short-term solution and wanting a long-term solution. I, I want both. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if there's room for that, but that, I, I, I think that's where we go. I, I just don't think that we can just go around saying people who want short-term solutions are anti-long-term and people who want long-term solutions have to, you know, their real motivation is to like not, not fix things in the short term because they just don't want to do anything. I, yeah. I just think that that's a deadlock that's just been super frustrating and unproductive. I completely agree. I think that also, uh, it's, I think we, in the system, we take a lot of things for granted. Like we just assume people know things um, and it, it's not true because it's not, you know, I don't know if people do know, like in San Francisco, at least, and I'm sure this is the same elsewhere. We have hundreds of people who are waiting in custody um, for their trial. And they've been in during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, it's been a while since I've, uh, since I've gone into that court where they send people out for trial, but at least like, you know, eight months ago, the numbers were like, you know, 400 people pending trial on um, felony matters and then another several hundred on misdemeanor matters. And, and we're talking, you know, even in misdemeanors, there were people held in custody pending trial. So these are people who have, who are still, you know, innocent before proven guilty. Um, so they're presumed innocent, um, but held. And so there, you're right. It's not, it shouldn't be. And there isn't this um, like one or the other, like we're only going to use root cause or only going to focus on, community solutions and nobody should be held in in custody because that's you know that's not how it's playing out on the ground there are definitely people being detained on uh in violent crimes every day um and these solutions that i'm talking about like um you know getting having very robust plans and case managers and so on those are those aren't cases that it has to be appropriate for the crime right it so it depends on the severity of the crime too yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense um so we're we're talking about you know we're, we're, it, so now we're talking about you know how to approach this right what do we do a solution right um in your work have you seen policies um that have shown promise you know in both you know, deterring, preventing and deterring crime, balancing the the rights to justice of the victims, um, while also not exacerbating conditions that predispose these uh, these crimes from happening in the first place. 
Yeah, and I can, I can yes, and I can give one example. Um, one thing we have started is an AAPI elder abuse steering committee. So mm. anytime uh, a victim is sixty-five um, and up, we, you know, it's considered elder abuse also. Um, and we've seen you know a good number of these cases last year, and I'm sure like in I'm saying last year because that's that's when I joined victim services, but I'm sure that this has been ongoing too. But you know, Tina's right. Like in in the past, I felt like a, a lot of the times, um, especially monolingual victims weren't really given a voice in court. And it part of it is just because there, you know, there was it's a language language access issue, but also because the individuals assisting them may not understand all of the cultural factors. Um, so we're trying to change that now, and and where whenever um, victims uh, choose to, and this is their right actually under Marcy's law, they're coming to court, um, even if they're not coming to testify. So even if it's not trial, they're coming to, to court to observe. Um, and they're weighing in on certain issues like whether the person should be detained or released. Um, you know, what is the, what is the uh, plea the, the plea resolution in this case, what is the sentence, and then giving victim impact statements. So that's something that that um, they've always ha had a right to under Marcy's law, but that's something that we're tr really trying to enforce now and bringing in court interpreters to support them. Um, and then part of the steering committee also is just like case coordination. So coordinating with other services in the community to make sure that they're getting uh, mental health tra treatment, trauma treatment, um, for the elderly who lost, uh, who I guess are not, were not or are not as independent as they were before the incident, making sure that they're supported through like in-home care. Um, they even have like senior escort services now. So just uh, sometimes volunteers, sometimes employees who come and, you know, escort them to go grocery shopping or, um, you know, taking walks. So, so that's one new thing that we've started um, and when we say like Asian, so I, I want to, sorry, that uh, there's just a lot to talk about. So I, my mind, is like, <laughs> yeah. um, but what, one thing I did want to talk about, and I don't want to minimize is that if, regardless of the numbers, like if it's, um, you know, if it, it actually is an Asian American crime wave or, or not, um, the fact, the fact is that there are some crimes that are committed against Asian American victims that are very brutal. Um, and I think I've said this, you know, on this show before too, or, or on your podcast, it, it's the level of brutalization that we see is not necessary. Like it's not necessary to throw somebody on the ground to take their watch. Um, it, you don't have to punch somebody over and over again to take their purse. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it, it does lead one to believe, like whether are or not you, there's. Um, sorry, just, sorry, about just Asian to. Victims. Yeah, um, yeah. Are you saying that the um, like, it might be like just uh, like say petty theft or or robbery mm -hmm. that there is an excessive like over and above the norm, like there's more violence being used on deployed against uh, Asian victims for these crimes than say um than than uh non-asian victims you know i can't say that 
you know, even anecdotal or definitively or even anecdotally, but okay. I, I just, I, you see it and it's like, you know, that wasn't necessary. Yeah. And, uh, and then the question is like, you know, was there, is there a certain level of dehumanization involved? And that's, that's kind of, you know, ties into what Tina's saying, like just this overall feeling that our community has been seen in a certain way. Um, it's hard to ignore that that's a possibility. And, you know, what is our system doing about that? Um, and so in court, um, you know, one way, but this is, you know, this doesn't have to do with prevention. This is more after the fact, but it's something that also wasn't done before. And that's really humanizing who the victim is. Um, because all we hear in the media is, um, you know, you know, another AAPI senior was attacked, elderly senior, and, and that's that's it. But we don't really understand who the victim is and what they experienced and um, like what life experiences they've had. And, it's, and when we are able to really get to know the victims that we're supporting um, and we have that cultural knowledge um, and we, we're asking the right questions to kind of um, bring out that information and, and to help them write out these victim impact statements that um, uh, that talk about you know what country they came from and all the hardships that they have had that they had before it gives a lot more context to the court that is ultimately sentencing the person and also to the person who committed the harm in their families so that that is something new that I think um, that that uh, that wasn't done before that we're doing now do you feel, um, I don't know if it's too soon to make a, to, to make a declarative statement. Do you feel that, uh, it's making a difference in outcomes for your, for your clients and for victims? I feel like it's making more of an impact. Um, and I think maybe ultimately we may change the, you know, maybe it wouldn't be like a condition of probation that the individual has to, that there has to be some sort of like educational component, um, to the resolution, maybe it's something that's built in. Um, so it's not like a specific order from the court, but maybe it's something that can be built into the the, the settlement agreement. Um, but I, I think people are realizing, starting to realize now that it's, um, we're not just asking for this, you know, out of nowhere that when, you know, they see, you know, Asian victim after Asian victim coming in now, uh, making these victim impact statements, they weren't seeing this before and saying like, I, I come from Guangdong, China. And, you know, this is, this is what I, my life was like before. And when I immigrated here, um, I couldn't find a job because of the language barrier, blah, blah, blah. And if they, when they hear about that hardship or the Vietnam, uh, you know, the, the person who is Chinese Vietnamese from Vietnam, who, um, you know, was went to bed starving for many years of his life and then uh, fled Vietnam during the war. Like it puts it into, a, it, it just gives it a lot more context. And it also gives the crime more context too, that, that experience. Um, because for a lot of, especially our elderly victims who have been through war and, um, you know, tougher life experiences, it, some of these these crimes are, you know, re-triggering, they re-trigger past memories. So I think it does give more context to the court and it gives them, um, you know, I, I can't say that it's changed the sentencing so far, but I think we're headed in a, a certain direction. 
that's really helpful. Um, and this is a it, is this kind of a pilot uh, being uh, being implemented in San Francisco, or just a general tendency in in um, redress of crime? This is um, no, this is just in San Francisco, as I understand it. Um, the language access, the ordering a court interpreter um, for victims who just want to come to court to observe. That's definitely. Uh, something that we started here um, and the victim impact statements that's I mean that's just because and that's when we talk about like diversity and bringing in like uh, you know why we need diverse systems that's part of like you know me being here and just knowing that just having you know being from the community and um, knowing that this is a problem and and um, knowing how to connect with the different victims I think that makes a difference too um, so one thing I definitely wanted to touch on. So um, when we talk about, you know, my one of my frustrations which I mentioned earlier is that the uh, dialogue is pretty strictly po uh, policed, um, no pun intended or anything, um, between like uh, like an expansion or reinforcement, like refunding, uh, retrenching law law enforcement versus just simply not um, there it, and. And so, you know, obviously that's a false, that's a false dichotomy, but one of the things um, that emerges as an alternative is stuff like, like community self-defense, right? Or self-defense in mm -hmm. general. Um, from a legal perspective, I wanted to hear your thoughts on that because um, uh, I, I uh, like, like, for example, like New York, um, to me strikes me as a really a hard state uh, to, like, New York has bans on pepper spray, Right. It took it, it like I remember in the pandemic when uh, like friends in New York, um, uh, like Asian female friends, you know, were were very nervous about, you know, spike in crime uh, and wanted to simply carry some pepper spray. And then we quickly found out just how punitive New York State is on um, on on carrying pepper spray or like it devices defensive devices really stuff that couldn't really be used offensively very mm -hmm. easily um and um so it seems like a it seems like that's a thing in in law enforcement and criminal justice that we don't really talk about like what happens when someone does say successfully defend themselves against a against an attack or something because we've I've, i know we've all seen cases where someone has successfully defended themselves and then they were punished for being perpetrators of a crime Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and you especially, know, it's actually you know, pretty tough. when we're talking about like non-carceral solutions, I think it does. I think we do need to be very careful because there is a, there is a way for that to kind of spiral out of control and just turns into like, well, we need gangs back. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, like, like, uh, I've seen people like, I, it's, it's a joke, but it's, it's a response to a real, like a real need here. Like saying like, let's, we need to bring the tongs back in San Francisco or, um, like community patrols. I, it was heartwarming to see them start in like San Francisco. Um, I saw them started in Los Angeles. I think New York had them at least for a little while. Um, but that, that runs into legal complications too. What if they do find a crime being perpetrated and there are people who, uh, get hurt as a result of that? Like, what is the legal framework for that? Mm -hmm. You know, I actually can't go into this too much cause I can't give legal advice. Um, oh, okay. and that kind of, yeah, this kind of borders on that. Um, so, but just generally, you know, 
Well, Thank I guess I'll pull it back then. Not like not talking about like, well, what should people do? Obviously, mm-hmm. or you know, what's the what's legal and not legal? Since that you know, that's that's way too big. Um, mm-hmm. But simply like, um, just as a just as a resident of more as a resident of San Francisco, then with and and has as as has a seat behind uh, at the table where you know criminal justice is being uh, litigated. Um, do you see? Um, do you see like people trying to take self-defense into their own hands as a, as a positive force or do you mm-hmm. see problems with that, um, with, with, uh, that, that approach? I see it as both. And it's funny last week, I just went to a protect our elders event in Oakland, Chinatown. Um, and so we were, I was volunteering there and, um, uh, it was, you know, it was a good experience. They had somebody come and the elders, the seniors formed a circle and they demonstrated uh, certain techniques. Like if you're being pushed, then you don't want to, you want to be standing with like one foot in front of the other. So you're more stable. And so teaching techniques like that, and then, um, you know, how, how not to hold your bags. Like you don't want it to be, you know, crossbody. You um, because that if somebody tries to pull on your purse, then you'd be dragged down. So they they mm-hmm. talked about common sense stuff like that, how to walk with more confidence so that you're not an easy target. Um, and then I think uh, I, I don't know which company or or law firm actually donated waste um, those waste bags like fanny packs uh, or money packs because it's much safer to hold those um, than like a grocery bag or a purse. So. You know, I've, I've attended, I attended at least one of those events and I think it's a good thing, you know, community building and just kind of people caring about the seniors and, and taking the time out to teach them these techniques that may come in handy, like last minute, if you're in that situation and, and giving them whistles and and stuff like that. But, um, those are, you know, it's, they're not perfect solutions. Right. And the, the fear always is like when, you know, when you're using, you know, you're, when you're using self-defense also, you don't know if the under, other individual is armed. Um, mm-hmm. And if that, you know, if what you do may provoke further violence. So it's, I think it's, um, like I said, it's not, it's not a perfect solution. Um, and, and it's, it's pretty complicated. Um, and it goes back to, you know, you know, do is that is this what we want to leave our seniors with um you know having to do this or is there more that we want to do and it obviously there's more right and um, yeah because what you're describing sounds so sad like that yeah. that shouldn't be what elder people yeah, yeah elder, elder elderly people should be out enjoying themselves and dancing mm-hmm. in parks and uh gathering in cafes and restaurants not learning how to avoid getting punched in the face you know but unfortunately that's what we have to do so and it shouldn't be these patrol groups do i think i have a lot of respect for some of these patrol groups um you know some of them are a lot of them are staffed by professionals um even lawyers who are just taking time out of their weekends to patrol and make sure that seniors can enjoy themselves and take walks and feel safe um so i think it's good to have just having you know more presence in the community can bring down crime. Um, but I, I, it goes back to what I was saying before, though. Like ultimately, we have to address the issue of like what are the causes of these crimes, and um, you know, 
investing in those resources for them to bring down crime. And, and it, it means, um, you know, taking the resources away from certain systems and then pouring them into the community. And, and then it means more oversight too. I think that's a part of the discussion that isn't really um, addressed regularly. Like when we say, um, like when, for example, a court decides to release somebody uh, to, into the community pending uh, a case and they're supposed to be supported by certain community-based organizations, um, who's, you know, who's providing the oversight for that? Who actually scrutinizes that plan to make sure that person is, is supported and supervised on a daily basis if necessary um, and that the court is being alerted immediately when there's an issue? Um, you know, that's, that's another thing that uh, I think we as a community can be playing, paying closer attention to. Yeah, I mean, I think the, for me, I feel like this is, I, I, my hope is that this draws Asian people more into the national conversation on crime and its origins and why is our society so goddamn violent and um, that's, I think that can be done at the same time as we think about things like community self-protection. Okay. Again, I, 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 I just get frustrated because this has become very politicized in an either or fashion in all respects. And it's, it just doesn't need to be that way. But I don't lay that at the feet of people uh, of, of I, I don't lay that at the, at the feet of elderly people in, in Chinatown and, and, and in, these, in, in our cities um, their desire for protection is not the problem here. I I do think that it is. It is the responsibility for people, like us, I think, um, to try and bridge or or try and depoliticize this, and and get rid of this either or mentality. But I don't know wh why it's become like this. But a lot of these conflicts to me don't seem to be conflicts but it has be they have become conflicts nonetheless i think there's a lot of there are political agendas at play here um which i particular i don't particularly care about but that that does seem to be part of the problem is really politics mm -hmm. and um I'd, I'd, I'd like to put the you know the safety of you know new yorkers in general and especially the uh, vulnerable elderly Asians and women that have been like taking the brunt of a lot of this, this should not be a political issue. The safety, you know, I think the real tragedy here is that the safety of these people has become a political issue. Do we care about them or not? Um, and that to me is not political. That's, that's granted. Of course we do. Um, so yeah, I, th I think it's been super helpful talking through this because I, I have found myself having, you know, the the fact that like you 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 know we are able to talk about this constructively people should be able to talk about this constructively but mm -hmm. yeah, we all have a stake in it too we will be at, like there is a lot of effort uh, and money dumped into shaping narratives because you know we are asked for our opinion at the ballot box where we our support where our opinions lie does matter in a in a community sense in the aggregate in the direction that these policies the way these policies take shape and are formed so 
Um, so I really like seeing more people engage as part of the as part of the issue, not as uh, spectators, I should say. Um, I'm sorry, Casey, you were you were starting to say something. Yeah, one thing I did want to bring up just and this is like for a whole other discussion is that I'm hoping at some point we can take this momentum and look at kind of systemic um, racism against our community too. like um, incidents that I can think of is just like how bullying is addressed, bullying of uh, Asian American students, API students. I, I don't think that the schools take those and I don't think enough is being done in schools to address that issue. Um, I see. So mm-hmm. There's that um, military hazing. I don't know if you guys remember the incident of uh, Private Danny Chen. Um, yes. Yeah, there's a, there's a street named after him in Chinatown here. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, so it, incidents like that, and then also, like, um, we talked about this. I, I still remember being... Uh, on your podcast uh, back in 2018, but like the protection of massage workers um, mm-hmm. and how they're kind of disenfranchised by our, by our system uh, and, and um, how our system steals from them. Uh, you know, we should be really looking into that. I think Red Canary Song is doing, has been doing a good job of doing that, but there are a lot of kind of, you know, system agencies that, are, that, uh, Kind of engage in this systemic racism, and I, I, I would like um, us to take some of this energy to look closely at those and to demand change. I would love to. I would love to do do more on that. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's just I think one of the one of the sub uh, subtopics for this conversation is kind of separating that work from. Um, the literal redress of crime, which I see as a breakdown of civil society and kind of a failure of the system. Um, Conflating the two seems counterproductive. I don't want, I don't want, I don't think it's in the purview of law enforcement, no matter how much money we invest in them to be able to solve systemic issues like that. Um, And seeking redress of of like systemic issues through the vector of like individual crime uh, to me seems, um, seems counterproductive from jump, even for the cause of seeking justice for that victim. Yeah, I think um, we're at like, we're almost at two hours. I thought that that's <laughs> and no, yeah. well, I think, I think that I think that's because of a result of, you know, it actually, Casey, it's been actually hard finding people to talk about this. I think it's it, it's weird how um, how unwilling a lot of people are, are to talk about this, particularly ones that are like, um, uh, like you that are that are actually working within the system and seeing what it's like. I, I mean, I think that's that's why we really want to talk to you because you have a particular credibility when it comes to actually participating in the system. Uh, and you know, having known you, I know that this is not um, this is not about you know not caring about what's going on. This is not about having a political agenda that supersedes, um, you know, protecting people. This is about, you know, complicated realities. And um, so I really appreciate you kind of sharing, um, sharing that because you're right. I, I, I don't think that media is always uh, 100% reliable in terms of being complete. Oh, or it's never reliable in terms of being complete. Um, I think I, I think that people like Safan Kim and Dion Lim are doing a very important job in highlighting what's going on. Um, but it is not the complete story either. 
right? Um, they are they are not the only voices that we should be hearing on this, though they are important, um, in my opinion. I don't even have a feeling about that, but anyway, that's where I stand on things. So mm-hmm. really appreciated it. No, yeah, I appreciate that this. I I think this is the one of the most nuanced discussions, it, and I think that I, I that I've taken a part in uh, on this issue. And I I think maybe the reluctance of people wanting to um, join to talk about this is just because it's so complicated. Like even within this talk, I felt like um, it's easy to get lost in in the different issues, right? In, in the weeds, and it's. Um, and it warrants, like, I think this is just a, the start of it, but it really warrants a much longer um, uh, discussion with with a lot of, like, different stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, we've been trying. You've been trying. Um, we're the number two best AAPI podcast, according to Good Housekeeping. So. I think number one. We're going to bring that up. Oh, that's a feather in the cap right there. Number two, baby, yeah. good housekeeping. Uh, anyway, <laughs> no, this this has been very helpful in in thinking through these issues. I can't express enough how much I appreciate your time and perspective, Casey. Likewise, appreciate you both too. And certainly, certainly hope to have you on um, soon, um, as schedules allow. Yeah, to discuss more. So, oh, thank you. Um, I, uh, Casey, I don't know if you had any final thoughts or maybe something that we just hadn't touched on that you that you thought was critical to it, or if not, um, could if there's a if if there's a project you'd like to you'd like our readers or listeners to um, to check out or um, support um, where they could potentially find you and, and more of your more of your work, um, that would be great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right now I I did have this blog before that has been going on for that I started, I think, back in 2014, Lowdown on Chinatown. And that was really to address kind of the issues in Chinatown and gentrification and so on. That's on pause now. And I'm I'm actually very happy to see that was a, um, it was like a labor of love and it, it was very time consuming going from Chinatown to Chinatown to learn about their issues and the people and to write about them. Um, and it was started during a time when it wasn't generating that much interest um, and now, seeing kind of the younger generation um, take interest in this and a ton of like IGs and groups popping up. I, I feel like um, they're really taking the lead on that. And and I don't really, uh, you know, we're kind of, you know, they've kind of taken over that work and that's a good thing. Um, so, I, I was a reader of Lowdown on Chinatown. Were you? <laughs> Thank I was, you. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is how, yeah. I, I thought it was a, it was, I thought it was a fantastic, very, very humane um, resource. That uh, I mean, I was, I was trying to read up on the history of Chinatowns, but um, a lot of it was just, just really Orientalist. Yeah, like just from the perspective, like look at this exotic, you know, stuff happening in this corner where people eat with sticks, um, and it, there was just never really a humane. Uh, uh, grounding for historical and cultural context in these in these Chinatowns. So I thought it was a very very it was a it was a much needed resource out there. Yeah, and, and now with these groups coming up, I, I just feel um, I feel like they're just gonna you know I, I hope this continues, and that's maybe what I can end on now is that I hope that um, even you know this is a 
if it's not a crime wave, it's at, it's at the very minimum a media wave um, that may not last forever. And I, I hope that when it ends, the community will still kind of um, stay interested in this is- issue and continue to want to kind of care about those disenfranchised within our community, the, the seniors without a voice and the low income families in Chinatown. Um, and to continue to, you know, I, I hope there will continue to be opportunities to volunteer and um, and to serve. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's, I guess that's that's it for this uh, this episode. Hope uh, hope you guys listening um, appreciate the conversation. Uh, once again, big big uh, big round of applause for Casey. Yep. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you.